we are going to move to the Gospel of John. Uh, we are currently working our way through the Gospel of John. We are um, John 1. We're in the first chapter of John. This morning we're going to look at verses 35 through 51. And is, as is our habit here at Rosedale Bible Church, uh, I'm going to invite you to stand and we are going to read this passage of Scripture this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into our message. Again, John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. Hear the word of the Lord. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you with this passage in hand, Lord, and we ask that your Spirit would move and work in our hearts, Lord that you would draw us nearer to you. Lord, that you would awaken our affections and our love for you to a greater degree this morning, Lord, that we would, if we don't know you, that we would see you in this passage maybe for the first time. Lord, if we do in fact know you, that we would see you afresh this morning. Help us, Lord, to, to hear these voices to evaluate our own walk with you and ask the question of our own hearts, what are you seeking, God? Help us, and we ask this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. With verse 35 and verse 36 here in this passage, we have a new day. We have a new day, and we have a previous message. It's an old message. We've already heard this message from the, John the Baptist. John the Baptist repeats this testimony, behold the Lamb of God, which we studied two weeks ago. We looked at that. We unpacked all of that. This time, however, John the Baptist isn't alone. He's standing with two of his disciples. 
where most teachers might frown upon sending their disciples away, John the Baptist doesn't frown on that, and he eagerly sends his disciples to one greater, that is, Jesus. Verse 37 tells us that John's disciples changed course. They did so instantly. They shifted their allegiance at once, verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, that is, behold the Lamb of God, and they followed him. They followed Jesus. It's this very event that gives us the very first words from Jesus in the Gospel of John. We, we finally hear Jesus speak. And the first thing we hear Jesus say is in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said this, what are you seeking? Here we have our question this morning. <laughs> what are you seeking? And it's not just question this morning. It's really a question for the ages, you might say. It's interesting that he doesn't say, who are you seeking? But he says, what are you seeking? This question and this, this question this morning is going to give us an opportunity to, to, I hope, search our innermost longings and desires. This question is designed to test our motives Jesus wanted to help these disciples understand their purpose, and this morning he wants us to consider or to understand our purpose. So this morning, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? What are you looking for this morning? What are you trying to get from life? What is your aim? What is your goal? If I'm honest with myself, in the very depth of my heart, what am I really trying to get out of this life? Is it security? You want to find a place of safety, maybe. To have enough money to meet the needs of life, to put away some when the work is done? Are you seeking a material security that will take away your worry for material things? Of course, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be safe and secure. It's a good thing. It's wise to put something away for the future. So there isn't anything wrong with this, necessarily. It's not a wrong aim, but it is a low aim. It's a low aim. This is because the world in front of us really offers a lot of uncertainty. I was thinking about Hurricane Ian recently with what, oh, nearly 150 people died, and all of their belongings pushed down the river. Everything. You imagine the family heirloom, the special Bible you might have, all the stuff you put in the safe, and the water took that safe away. It's all gone in a day. Maybe you're seeking power, prominence, prestige, or a place to use your talents and abilities. Again, it's not a bad aim. If we're seeking such things for bad motives, however, it is a bad aim. If we're seeking to serve people or to make a world a better place, that's a good aim, but, it, but it's not enough. Why? Because this goal is bound by time and the limits of this world. It's like that manager, that dishonest manager Only you can answer this question, what are you seeking? Is it money, fame, ease, pleasure, or relationship? Maybe it's 
to relive the past or some experience, to, to chase the adrenaline of an emotion. It's my hope that this morning, God might reveal to you the answer to this question. That's my hope. That this very morning, God's word would pierce to the division of your soul and of spirit, of our joints and our marrow, and would discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Ephesians 4.12. Excuse me, Hebrews 4.12. And not that God's word would expose us for harm. Of course not. God's not going to do that. But like a surgeon or like a doctor who must open up a womb, a wound, in order that it might heal properly, that God would unmask our hearts in order that we might feel a desperate need for him. So this morning, I want us to listen to four voices that will reveal what we should be seeking. Four voices that will reveal what we should be seeking. The first voice is Andrew's, Andrew's voice. But before we discover that, we we hear a response to Jesus' question, what are you seeking? Disciples answer with a question themselves, where are you staying? That's their response. This is an interesting response and probably reveals that these two disciples wanted to have a, a private and undisrupted conversation with Jesus. If all that John testified about this one was true, well, certainly they would have questions of him. This response might even reveal that a disciple of Jesus is one who wishes to enter in and to linger long with him, like these disciples did. They had a desire to talk out their problems and their troubles with Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is is not one who is satisfied with a passing word, a chance encounter, or an exchange of few words. These men want to know Jesus as more than an acquaintance in passing, They want a friend. They want to be with him in his home. And so they ask, where are you staying? We're so blessed with the answer from Jesus. Jesus doesn't send them away. He says, come, and you will see. Come and see. Remember, our our secret desires are no mystery to Christ. He knows them. He knows what's in our heart. He knew the desires of these men. He could read their hearts. He could see what they were seeking. His presence, his person, his fellowship. And Christ never disappoints. He doesn't disappoint these men. He welcomes them in. I love what Lenski writes. He says, Jesus opens the door to them on the instant, just as if he had been waiting for them. Kings and the great men of the earth hedge themselves about with servants and ceremony so that it is difficult to reach them and get speech with them. One must arrange an interview in advance to secure audience at all. Nothing is easier than to get an audience from the king of kings at once. Come and see. He invites them in. Verse 39 continues with, So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him, for it was about the tenth hour. They did, in fact, stay with him. They dwelt with Christ. We can only speculate as to what was discussed. As they say, how'd you like to be a fly on the wall? I'm sure the discussion was grand. We're finally given some details about these disciples in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
one of the two, and so there were two of them there. The other one, the other one was, and, it was Andrew, and the other disciple was John the Apostle. John has a way of inserting himself in the book with great subtlety. The fact that the second disciple is not named proves the fact that this was John the Apostle. If it was anyone else, he would have said it, but he doesn't. So you have Andrew and John here in this narrative. Apparently, the time spent with Jesus left a deep impression on Andrew. Verse 41 tells us that Andrew wasted no time finding his brother. Verse 41, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. There's no doubt in Andrew's mind who this man is. This is not a supposition. It's not a surmise. It's not a deduction. It's an unqualified fact. We have found what Israel has been looking for. We have found the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. John helps the reader here. He says Messiah means Christ. Messiah is the, from the Aramaic, Mashiach. We're familiar with Christ, Christos, Jesus Christos, Jesus Christ in the Greek. The word means anointed one. That's what Messiah means, anointed one. Describes the, the coming Savior of the Old Testament. That's who this Messiah is. Now, if we were to put ourselves in Andrew's sandals for a moment, he would have been awaiting God's promised and anointed king. All the Jews were. Now, there are key places in Scripture that refer to this king. There are many, many places we might go. I wanted us to just briefly read Psalm 110 because it's that psalm that is quoted most in the New Testament. There's any psalm that, that refers to the Messiah, we might say it could be Psalm 110 because, again, it's quoted so much, so often in the New Testament. Psalm 110 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. It is Yahweh who's sending forth this mighty scepter, that is, the Son, Jesus. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. They'll worship him. From the, wo from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, that is Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. This is what's in Andrew's mind when he thinks about calling Jesus, Jesus Messiah. It's this one from Psalm 110. He's saying we have, we have found the one that sits at the right hand of God. We have found the one that rules in the midst of his enemies, that has offered the praise of his people, that is a priest forever. To say we have found the Messiah is to say we have found the one that will shatter kings on the day of God's wrath, that will execute judgment on the nations. All of this is true and found in the person of Jesus Christ. Here we have the one that will fully and finally deliver Israel from their oppressors, he will establish all of the promises fulfilled from the Old Testament. Abraham's promises and David's promises all found their, fin their final fulfillment in person and work of Jesus Christ. And so having found this one, what does Andrew do? Well, he brings Simon to Jesus. He goes to his brother. 
You might call this family evangelism. He goes to his brother and he brings them to Jesus. Andrew is not content to, to merely tell his brother about the Messiah, but he's bringing him to the Messiah. John writes, verse 42, Jesus looked at him and he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. What does Jesus do? He changes his name. He changes his name. It's the first thing he does. Why does he do this? Well, in the Bible, to, to have your name, we know this, to, to have your name changed is, is to enter into a new kind of relationship with God. Can you think of people who have had their names changed in the Bible? Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Right? Abram's name was changed to Abraham. And here we have Simon's name being changed to Peter. So again, you have a new kind of relationship that begins with the changing of a name. Now, if we're reading this in the original language, we know that Peter is the word rock. So Jesus is saying, we're going to call you rock. That's what he's saying. Kind of a nickname, you might, might think. So he's going to be called rock or stone. Why does he do this? Well, this is, this is significant to what's going to happen in Peter's life. Because God, Jesus, is going to build the church on Peter. He's going to be the rock. He has a, a, an immense role for this man. If we're familiar with the book of Acts and the early church and all that happens when the, in the birth of the church, we know that Peter is a critical a, apostle during that time. What does this renaming of Peter teach us about how God sees us? Or should I say could say it this way, does it teach us anything about how God sees us? I think it does. You know, when, when Jesus looked at Peter, he, he saw more than a fisherman. He saw more than a fisherman. When, when he looked at Simon, he saw a rock. That's what he saw. We know Peter has a long way to go. In fact, it's interesting you think about the way Jesus interacts with Peter, Simon, I know I keep going back and forth. The way he interacts with him is that when, when Peter goes back to that old man, he actually refers to him as Simon. He, he, it comes back up in a couple places. When, when, when Peter says that he won't deny Christ in Luke chapter 22, verses 31, Jesus rebuked him and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You're thinking like the old man. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night Jesus was crucified there, Peter should have been watching and praying. Do you remember that account? And Jesus comes to him and he says, Simon, are you asleep? You're being the old man. Yet in giving Simon a new name, he sees all that Peter will become. God sees more than our actualities. He sees our possibilities. This is true of all who come to Jesus because coming to Jesus equates to a new life. That's what it is. It's a new life. It's a new birth. We're given a new name. 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have a new name. We're new people. Now, I'm not sure exactly where Peter's spiritual journey began, 
but I am sure that coming to Jesus meant that he found a new life, a different kind of life. I'm not sure if this is truth or myth, probably a legend, but it's told of Michelangelo. You know, he was chipping away on that huge rock, and someone asked him what he was doing, and he said, I'm releasing the angel imprisoned in the marble. Well, I suppose Jesus is the one who sees what's possible with a new nature, a new name, having found Christ and being transformed by his grace. God has something unique and special for each of us. Verse 43, we find ourselves in a new day. We have another new day. And we have a second voice. This is the voice of Philip. Verses 43 through 45. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The first thing we note here is that Jesus seeks Philip. It's a little different this time around. Jesus finds Philip. He says, follow me. He commands him to enter into a discipleship relationship. Follow me. Having become a disciple of Jesus... Philip does the only appropriate thing. Like Andrew found his brother, Philip finds his friend. He finds Nathanael. Philip says to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Which is another way of saying what Andrew said. We have found the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. He's here in the person of Jesus. When Philip speaks of Moses and the prophets, you know he's speaking of the Old Testament. He's speaking of that, the law, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch or the Torah, sometimes it's called, and the prophets, you know, the two, two halves of the Bible. And in both places, there are illusions and symbols of Christ. In the law, you have Genesis 49. You have Deuteronomy 18, two places not to mention Genesis 3.15. It talks about the Messiah that will crush the head of the serpent. You have all these symbols and illusions that look forward to this Messiah. Also in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. You might think of the, the highest point in the prophets that speak of this Messiah as being Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Philip is saying that a man from Nazareth with a father named Joseph is that promised king. He's this one that the Bible speaks about. We have found him. He's the, the prophet, the king, the suffering servant from the Old Testament. All of it finds its place in Jesus Christ. So we have two great testimonies about this one, Jesus. The testimony of Andrew and the testimony of Philip. In verses 46 and 49, we have a third voice. We're going to add another voice to this. This is the voice of Philip's friend, Nathanael. He is going to enter in. Verse 46, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, Come and see. Right away, Nathanael is not impressed with Philip's enthusiasm. He voices a reservation. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Certainly Nathanael knows that this is a city unnamed in the Old Testament. How, how could this one that you're speaking of, this great and mighty Messiah, come from a city that isn't even in the Old Testament? That's not possible. Not to mention, you know where that city is, right? That's in Galilee. That's up north. Those people up there, they're rebellious. They don't follow the law. There's no way a Messiah comes from Nazareth. I love Philip's response. He doesn't argue. Come and see. I'm not going to stand here and argue with you. I know that when you, when you come and see this man, you'll see that this is, in fact, Messiah. He's not going to argue with him. And so Nathaniel, he does play the game. He's a good man. He sets aside his prejudice, and he goes and meets Jesus. Verse 47 Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. There's a greeting. Pretty amazing. Nathanael is greeted with, a, with this joyous, striking response. What an assessment from Jesus. An Israelite indeed, in whom there is no Jacob. There is no deceit in him. How are we to take this assessment from Jesus? A couple thoughts. In light of Nathaniel's doubts about Messiah, it may be that Jesus is commending Nathaniel for coming anyway. He had his doubts. He could have been like so many of the other Jews that we, we know from, from the New Testament, but he's not that way. Okay, I'll come look. He sets aside his prejudice to come in fact see if this is Messiah that his friend speaks of. Nathaniel is the kind of man who, who's more concerned with finding the Messiah than any preconceived notion about where he thinks he ought to come from. He sets it aside, and so he goes and sees who this man is. Jesus says, Nathaniel is a man in whom there is no deceit. He's a sincere man. He's heartfelt. He's genuine. He's bona fide. I'm reminded of Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, for they shall see God. Here's a man who's pure in heart, and here's a man who's standing before God. What a privilege. What a privilege. Taken aback, Nathaniel's response, how do you know me, is his response. And Jesus' reply is shocking. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel, it's like it, there's a moment where he takes a breath. He hears this, right? And he, and he just takes this breath, just enough to utter the words, you are the king. You are the son of God. Just like that. Shocking. He breaks forth with this testimony that Jesus, that you are the long-awaited Messiah. Just like that. Nathaniel declares that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the King of Israel. And this is a man with no deceit. He knows the Old Testament scriptures. He knows what he's saying. He's read Psalm 2. As for me, as Yahweh, 
I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, that is the son Jesus, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Today I have brought you forth. And here he is with them. Messiah is son and king, so we have the voice of Nathaniel. Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel. Now we have to back up a little bit, right? We gotta, we gotta talk a little bit about what Nathaniel might have been doing under this fig tree. It was not unusual for a Jew to find a secluded place under the canopy of a fig tree. Of course, prayer and personal devotion would have been a part of that. It's likely the case that these words from Jesus just struck directly to Nathaniel's heart. There's no way to know precisely what was happening, but as, I, as I've always read this and studied it and thought about it, it just seems to me that there, there must have been something that existed in Nathaniel's heart, so, something that he was going through, some element of prayer, something that so connected him to God in that moment that for God to say, I saw you under the fig tree, it was just like that. He knew instantly that that man standing in front of him was God in the flesh. He knew it without hesitation. So let us consider these four voices, or it's three voices. Verse 41, Andrew declares, we have found the Messiah. Verse 45, Philip declares, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In 49, Nathanael declares of Jesus, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And so we have three voices that answer the question, who is this Jesus? He is the long-awaited Messiah. I hope you can hear this voice. I hope you have heard this voice. We opened with this probing question, what are you seeking? Jesus himself asked this question in verse 38. What are you seeking? That's where we began. I'm not sure what Andrew, John, Simon, Philip, and Nathaniel were seeking, but I sense that their searching, whatever they were searching for, came to an end when they found Jesus. Force of the narrative is that whatever aim they came to, whatever aim they had, whatever goal they had, came to a head in Christ. They did no more searching when he was found. I don't think it's an accident that the word find or found is, is repeated throughout this narrative. These men found something. They found something that would forever change the trajectory of their lives. And so this morning, we have the most wonderful opportunity of facing this question. What am I seeking? And we can face this question head on. This morning, you and I can cast away all self-seeking, all seeking for safety and security, all seeking for ease, all our worldly ambition and aims, and together we can rise to the height of our calling. A call to be servants of our Lord, ambassadors of Christ. Even a calling to challenge others with such a question, what are you seeking? 
I hope you can see the promise that's hidden in this question. There is a promise hidden in this question, what are you seeking? The promise, the hidden promise, is that Jesus is the highest treasure that we could seek. We still have one voice to hear, and of course, it's the voice of Jesus. Look at verse 50 and 51. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus tells Nathanael that greater things are to be seen. A couple things are very interesting here. First, Jesus moves to the, to the plural in verse 51. You can't see it there in the English because we don't have a plural second, second person pronoun. It's just you. In the South, we say y'all. That's how we do that. Of course, I'm from, not from the South, so I don't do that. But <laughs> you all, right? he's saying you all will see heaven opened. Y'all will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Secondly, the, the verb tense carries the idea of continuing action. So, in, so he's saying, you all will see again and again and again heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We have this, this you know, picture of a storm cloud that follows us around on a sorrowful day. You know that picture, we've seen that. Here Jesus paints the picture of heaven permanently open above him. Jesus is saying that there, there's, no, there's no horizon between him and the heavens. There's, there's ever and always a link between him and heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, we're familiar with this language of the angels ascending and descending, or this picture, because it's an allusion to Jacob's dream. You remember Genesis 28 it was in that dream that, G, that Jacob put his head on a rock. He fell asleep and he saw a ladder, right? And a ladder with angels ascending and descending on it. Jacob's ladder. When Jacob arose from that dream, he declared, surely Yahweh is in this place. God is here, was his declaration. So the point that Jesus is making is that he is the link between heaven and earth. He is the revealer of divine truth. He is, as 1 Timothy 2.5 says, the mediator between God and man. Later in chapter 3, he'll say to Nicodemus, another allusion to this in chapter 3, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What Jesus is saying to Nathaniel is simply this, I can do far more than see you under a fig tree. I can be for you and for all men the latter leads to heaven. Jesus said to Nathanael, you will see greater things than these. You will see greater things than these. That's a profound statement. It's provocative. Of course, we know that Nathanael and his disciples would see great things. In fact, in the next chapter, in the next, next week, we're going to look at Jesus turning water into wine. That's unbelievable. It's miraculous. I don't think, however, that these words simply apply to Nathaniel. I believe that because I've seen great things. 
And I know that you've seen great things. We've all seen great things. We've seen God mend broken relationships. We've seen God's provision time and time again. Something I say is, you know, God makes 10 out of nine. I only have nine pieces, and somehow there's 10. God does it over and over and over again. We can look back with 2020 vision and see God's grace and providence in the tapestry of our lives. We have seen greater things. All that's true, but yet I sense the importance in this question, what are you seeking? I sense its importance, importance because I find myself all too often seeking money, seeking popularity, seeking comfort, seeking pleasure. Every heart has its object. And I know that if my heart is not set on Christ, it is set on something, well, which is not Christ. Something that I shouldn't be seeking. That will not bring me joy in the end. I must return again and again to this question, what am I seeking? On what is your heart set? We must set our hearts on finding Jesus. If Christ is in fact, as Andrew and John and Simon and Peter and Nathaniel have said, if he is the long-awaited Messiah, then we must seek an increasing knowledge of him. We must seek a more intimate relationship with him. We must seek a closer walk with him. We must say fully and finally and forever, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. It's my hope that this message would grow your affections for Jesus. That you would walk out of these doors attributing a greater value to Christ than you did when you walked through these doors. That's my hope. And all of that is important and necessary, but we can't stop there. We have to push just a little further. As you know, the voices that we heard from this morning only give us a starting place. This is only the beginning. This is only the beginning for these men. This is where we start. Each of these men long to feel Christ's presence and to hear his voice. As I've argued this morning, you and I must not only be persuaded that all earthly seeking must end in Christ, we must also be persuaded that we are in desperate need of his voice every day. It's not a one-time thing. Very practically, where are we to find the voice of Jesus? Where is his voice today? For the disciples, the answer was near the sea or in the city, on the road. If we are to find Jesus, we must know where he is located and we must go to him. For you and me, he is found on the pages of Scripture. This is where we find Jesus, where we seek his voice. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, yes, 
you have found Jesus. That's true, but you cannot stop there. The scripture contains the voice of Jesus, and we must listen to him. You remember what Jesus told Pilate in John 18, 37? Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. If you're of the truth, you will hear his voice. You will listen to his voice. 1 Peter 2, 2 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. There's an interesting phrase. We seek his word to grow up into salvation. Psalm 29, 4 says, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Later in John 15, this is way later. It'll take us a while to get there. We will get there. John 15, Jesus speaks about abiding in Christ, abiding in him. He calls us to abide in him, and he defines abiding this way. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. That's what it means to abide in Christ. To abide in Christ is to have his words, the scriptures abiding in us. That's what it means. We're not in the word. If, if, if scripture is not pouring over our thinking and our heart and our mind, we're not abiding in Christ. John, uh, Jesus continues in John 15, 11, in that same context about abiding in Christ, and he says this, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, joy is not found in seeking worldly pleasure. Joy is found when our noses are in our Bibles, seeking to know Christ more and more. It's in the scriptures that we find the fullness of joy because this is what it looks like in our day to seek Jesus. I think that's practical. I hope it is. So what were you seeking this week? What are you seeking this morning? And I leave you with this. What will you seek tomorrow? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you again in prayer. We ask, Lord, that you would use these words and this message, this example, this narrative story, Lord, of these voices, and that we would hear the truth that you are the long-awaited Messiah. That that wouldn't just go in one ear and go out another, but it would drive us to know you more and more. God, help us to attribute value to you, to seek you out, to find you even daily. Use this message, Lord, in our lives. Continue to be with us and to transform us into Peter's, I suppose. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.